welcome to you know what i'm actually i was every every time i do a podcast i say welcome to inside the hive but it's 2020 and i feel like i need a new opening do you have yeah. any ideas da um bzzz, inside the hive. we in the hive we in the something hive. like that what do you think of that <laughs> sounds like a little shock jockey bzzz, we in the hive let's do uh let's just stick with welcome okay. to inside the hive i'm your host nick bilton happy new year mm. Uh, my guest today, D.A. Wallach, mm-hmm. uh, a biotech investor, is here to talk to me about... Well, so I wrote a piece in Vanity Fair just at the end of the year talking about all of the crazy things that we've seen happen just in the last decade alone. Um, uh, and uh, so we were talking about that. And I wanted to have you on to talk about what the crazy things that will happen in biotech, healthcare, science, you name it, over the next decade or even the next year. Um, so let's just jump right in. Yeah. So, well, I, I mean, why don't we start by talking about your article, okay? Which is characteristically pessimistic. <laughs> uh, you, right? You sort of begin. It was it, half yeah. pessimistic. What? Really? It was. Where a was the? Bit where was the hope? The hope was. I, the hope was in healthcare. I said, oh, you know, okay. I did say, like, yeah. The article I talked about how a decade ago there was no such thing as a job like an Uber driver or a social media manager. You didn't get laid on Tinder. You met people at bars and restaurants and were introduced to them. You, uh, what were other things that have changed in the last 10 years? I mean, it's just countless things. You know, you used to go to a bank to deposit checks and and your phone has become a a thousand different things in 10 years. Right. And, um, and I, it's, you know, there's been good and there's been bad, but the thing that I found so fascinating when I was working on the piece was that I remember I was at MIT getting a tour of the media lab um, probably about a, about a decade ago. And there was a professor there that said to me, you know, the amount of change you're going to see in the next hundred years is going to equal the same amount of change you've seen in the last 20,000. And it's going to kind of ha- happen exponentially. And so what we saw happen in 10 years is now going to be probably compressed to two or three years. And so the next decade is going to be three times what we experienced in the last uh, the last decade, which was what I found truly fascinating. My optimism was that, you know, there'll be all these things in healthcare that will happen and so on and so forth. So, Right. Well, I think there, I mean, there are two sort of subtopics within this. The first is just a factual account of how quickly history is happening, how much technology really is changing or has changed. I think the last time I was here, we talked about Peter Thiel's sort of counter narrative to this, which is that despite everyone's talk about how rapidly things are changing, maybe we're actually in a period of stagnation. So yeah, the consumer internet has reshaped daily experience and you can't discount how important that's been to our daily lives, but in material sciences, in aerospace, in biotechnology, in chemistry, you've seen this sort of lack of radical progress that started maybe in the 60s or 70s. And so I'm open to either possibility, either we are moving really quick or we're not. Having never lived in a previous period of time, I don't know how quickly things are changing. But isn't part of that 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 over the last decade, the, the technological infrastructure that was put in place you know, from the 70s, 80s, 90s forward, created the world that was perfectly timed for the smartphone, right? Uh, All the wireless technologies, GPS, um, 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, so on and so forth. And that the things that we are, that we've seen over the last decade taking place in labs and research centers and so on are, are still haven't hit the market, like graphene, for example. Right. 
I remember it's in my tennis racket. Apparently, is it? It's in your. That's tennis what they racket. say. So, I mean, they market it that way. So graphene's this 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 new material that they discovered in the last decade, and it's you know harder than steel and lighter than you know Superman, and and it highly can be conductive, highly yeah. conductive. It can conductive underwater. It can be used in airplanes, and uh, and it, it, cl- it can be clear for it's all of these things, and it's an, it's like the it's this genius, unbelievable technology. And you're just, 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 just now seeing it being used in commercial applications like your tennis racket. And, but the next generation airplane could be made with it. And so it feels like when I look at, when I, you know, spend my time reading all these science papers about the things that have been invented over the last few years, it feels like those things haven't actually the applications haven't been built for them. Is that right? Maybe. I, I mean, I kind of think that's right. And the hard question, I mean, as an investor, you live it day to day because our lifeblood is making predictions. So unlike pundits, you know, as an investor, you got to put your money where your prediction is, right? And if you're right or you're wrong, you get paid or you lose money. So, I mean, I'll admit freely, something I eight years ago thought was going to happen was augmented reality. I thought that by today, we would have a commercial augmented reality headset that was out there on the market. Maybe it'd be like the glasses you or I are wearing, so it wouldn't be a radical shift. A lot of people already wear glasses. Just imagine you could overlay information on the world as you looked out through them. Seems like people would like that. Now, that may still happen, as virtual reality may still happen, but they haven't happened yet. So there were a lot of people saying, this is right around the corner, all the basic building blocks are there, just wait a year or two. You know, Zuckerberg famously spent whatever, $3 billion buying Oculus, still hasn't paid off. Now, we'll see if it does, but with some of these narratives, the timing is the hardest part. Well, the timing, I think that is the thing that's, that what, the realization that I had looking and covering the consumer internet over the past decade was that timing is everything. everything. And so if you look at, let's take YouTube. YouTube was not the first website on the internet to share videos. It was not the easiest website on the internet to share videos. It was not the only website that was selling pirated videos. It was that it came along at the exact right time that people were like, oh, I have this new little camcorder and I want to be able to upload a video. And this is the this is the website that I remember seeing that pirated content on. Of I've, There was like some video that went viral on there. It was like one of the first ones. And it became YouTube. Well, and, and, and it was scaled by Google. Well, remember, right? It was scaled by Google after the fact. Yeah, but after it a certain the point. That was, that, that, that but was, same, same with Instagram, right? You know, got to a certain scale, then Facebook captured it, and their scale machine took over. Well, I think that that's what is... But the Instagram wasn't the first Instagram either. It was just right. that it was the one that came out right when the first iPhone with the really shitty camera came out, and it had this thing called a filter. And people were like, oh, I have a place to post my photos that now look beautiful because of this algorithm that creates a filter. So I think that, I don't think you were wrong with your AI, your AR prediction. It's just that the, because I actually do use it on my phone yeah. a little bit yeah. um, to make measurements. And right. I, you know, there's those apps where you can kind of rearrange furniture in AR and there's games and so on. I think it's just that it, that the application through which we view it has not been created yet. That's right. Well, I think, you know, it's starting to happen, but it's it's probably happening in a different way than the pundits might have imagined it, right? So, so while you so you're investing in biotech, That's right? right? And when you're looking at you're you're not thinking about, well, what's the next big thing next year? You're thinking about what is going to be the Google of biotech in 10 years. 
How do you predict that? Well, you start, I mean, there are two vectors you got to pay attention to. The first is how well do we understand diseases? How well do we understand biology? That's a frontier that's moving very, very quickly. So, you know, 15 years ago to sequence a person's genome cost billions of dollars. That's become very cheap. Doing all kinds of other molecular analysis. What does it cost analysis. now to do it? Well, you, you can sequence a whole genome for four or $500. Then the analysis of it is another five, $600. So talking a thousand bucks, you can do something today that cost $3 billion 15 years ago. And what do you think it'll be in 10 years? Will it be free? Oh, it might be free. It might be a hundred dollars. You know, it'll, it'll go to zero though. And so in biology, we've got all these tools that are generating this avalanche of information, which is just raw under raw materials through which we can develop an understanding of how the natural world works now. So that's frontier one. Do we understand how life works? We're getting much, much more knowledgeable very quickly. Then the other frontier is what are the tools at our disposal to intervene in the workings of the natural world? And that's where one of the major breakthroughs of this decade came in CRISPR, which is this gene editing technology. So we have these two frontiers both advancing very rapidly. The understanding of what's happening in life in organisms like ourselves, and then the toolkit that we can use to go and manipulate living systems and get them to do stuff we want them to do, not that they accidentally do as a result of evolutionary history. That's that's major. So when the, so we're about to hit this period, or we are at, at this period, we are just at the very beginning of it, where using these two different vectors you have, um, you're going to start to see the editing of, of humans, right? Well, you had the first edited human born this year. I mean, that's a, that's a major breakthrough. That's got to be one of the biggest things that happened this decade. And so do you think that over the next 10 years, you're going to start to, is that just going to become as normal as getting eyeglasses? I, I don't know if it's going to become normal and the, the, you know, ethics that govern it have to be worked out by societies. I mean, scientists can only make the tools. They can't adjudicate how the societies ought to govern these things. But, you know, as an example, China has now sentenced to three years in prison, the guy who did this editing of a human baby, um, because their view was, look, you sort of crossed a lot of ethical breaches when you did that. And there wasn't yet a consensus about how this should be regulated. What that did, what the, did the scientist edit out, out of this human baby? Well, he edited a gene that changes the susceptibility to HIV so that the child who was born, in theory, would be immune to HIV. So that is an area you might expect to be relatively acceptable. You know, if, if you think about human DNA editing, there are areas that are pretty clean cut in terms of ethical acceptability. You know, you'd start by using this technology to save people from horrific diseases that are totally preventable. I mean, it, it's hard to defend why you would want children born with so what is But stuff. what is the moral defense for not doing it? Well, the moral defense, there, you know, there's this uh, great book... Um, by this uh, philosopher at Harvard that I think maybe we, we talked about once um, uh, that is called The Case Against Perfection. Yeah. And the argument of that is that so many good things about our culture have come from the sort of roulette wheel of biology. You know, the fact that you can't choose exactly what your children are going to be like. That teaches you to love people who are different from you. Um, the fact that sort of our um, society sprinkled with randomness as a result 
of evolution and the way it operates without our control. You know, uh, you can you can claim that that has produced a certain ethical orientation among us that is desirable. Now, I'm I'm skeptical of that. I mean, it's it's possible that good things have come from what the history is, um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that we have to continue that way. But isn't one of the big complaints of the last decade, I mean, there's been a lot, but like one of the big complaints from consumers is that is that they feel like, I remember when I was, um, I was just out of high school, college, and I was like maybe 20 years old or something like that. And I, I did what you did back then. I went backpacking around Europe. And I remember showing up to train stations and literally flipping a coin and deciding which country I was going to go to next mm. and ended up in some pretty precarious situations and some fun ones and some terrifying ones and so on. And and I think that like you're not going to it's technology doesn't doesn't force you to do that. They it forces you to do the complete opposite. And one of the complaints a lot of people have had that I've spoken to recently, of course, about you know things that that they miss is the fact that there is no randomness anymore in technology. You don't randomly stroll into a bookstore and find that book that you never right, would. It's right. an algorithm you don't run that into says a it. random friend. Or yeah, and it's and it, it, it or like you listen to music that sounds like this music that sounds like that music. Right. And um, and I just, I when you apply that to nature, hmm. um, don't we end up with this kind of algorithmically created human that is just the same as everyone else? Well, I think... I mean, we, so it sounds a little yeah. bit like what Hitler wanted, well, but... Well, yeah, I, look, you know, we certainly don't want what Hitler wanted, but um, I think you want people to make thoughtful decisions about how to use this stuff. And we may not like what we see when you give the market... A choice when you when you let the market choose. Hey, how do you want to use Instagram in your daily life? It, it turns out people do a lot of annoying stuff, right? <laughs> I mean, my wife is circling us, filming, capturing content for social media right now because I view that as important. So it's like I, I think capitalism is an exquisite system for fulfilling human demand. You know. Technology gives people more options, and then capitalism lets them get the thing they want from among those options. And, and sometimes it exposes aspects of our humanity, aspects of our psychology that we don't like. One of the things that I have found, I, you know, I started, I read the New York Times when I was, I think it was like 2004 or five or something like that, and, um, and then went to Vanity Fair four years ago and I've on, and all of those things have my career kind of happened on the same path that social media was invented took off yeah it literally and you, you were writing about and it I was too. writing about it I you remember wrote the book on Twitter I wrote the book on yeah. Twitter but I remember at the times I um there was a uh, one day when I show, I was the, the lead blogger for the Bits blog, um, and which is now defunct. It's I think that's when I met the, you. The, the tech, yeah, yeah, it was a long time ago, and and I remember I was so passionate about Twitter as the, this future for news, and I would give like talks in the newsroom about it and try to get like people. Mark Bittman, I remember, I you know a friend of mine and I who, who I worked with, we we sat him down and we showed him how to use Twitter, and and we took other people. People would like it was you know word started to spread like go talk to Nick and and all these other guys to to figure out like how, how to use these things and how they make sense. And I was I was like the biggest proponent for social media that you could find in that building at the New York Times. And one of the things that I didn't think about was the fact that 
and ironically, as a journalist, that that I do believe that free speech should have some limitations. And and I don't exactly know what they are. Um, I, I just what I've experienced and seen over the last fifteen years is that unmitigated free speech where everyone is given an equal voice on the same telephone line and same platform can lead to disaster. And um, and and I think you know, I, look, I, I don't have the answer. I'm not going to pretend to. What do you I, think of the Chinese? approach to this? I think that, you know, it's interesting. I, I know people who are based in China, who are journalists there, who are um, who work in, in, in business there and technology and so on. And there are, some of them say, you know, it's a little terrifying, especially when you look at what they're doing to Muslims and so on. Um, other people uh, have, uh, someone recently argued to me that like, hey, look, I don't think the American system works. I don't think the Chinese system works, but I think it works better than the American system. I don't know if I agree with that. I'm just parlaying the, the thing. But but what I do think, when I look at like England, for example, where I grew up, there are some rules and regulations about what you can and cannot say about someone in a public light. And and while some of them I may agree with and some of them I may not, I do believe that there should be limitations. And this is coming from someone who writes words for a living. Yeah. And and in the same way that you can't walk into a movie theater and yell fire because someone could get hurt, there should be limitations to what you can say online. And the reason I bring this up is because I think that it, there is a parallel to figuring out to, the once you cross that, once you open the dam of gene editing humans, who is it to decide? And this is always the argument for the First Amendment folks. It's like, well, who gets to decide? No one, therefore, that means everyone should be able to say whatever they want. So when it comes to the gene editing aspect of society, when we move forward, who gets to decide like, okay, well, HIV is okay. We should get rid of that. But I guess blonde hair and blue eyes is probably okay too. Well, I and think, like, I, look, let's start by using technology to do the best things we can do with it. You know, I mean, some of the challenges with what's happened in social media and the on-demand economy and all of this is that we had these new tools and maybe we were a little hasty in applying them to kind of superfluous aspects of our life. I mean, one of the great things about investing in medicine is that you can sleep at night pretty easily knowing that you're trying to point technologies at solving really big human problems. I mean, you think about your own life, one of the worst things that can possibly happen, and you, I know you've lived through it, I've lived through it, is you have family members come down with horrible terminal illnesses, chronic diseases, whatever. You know, all of us would benefit by having technological solutions to those problems. You know, why don't we direct our energy there and a decade from now, we can then start talking about other crazy stuff we might do with this technology, you know, and, and, and let's marginalize the people who are preoccupied with doing crazy stuff that's unnecessary. You know, let's, let's put all the human capital and talent into doing stuff that's really important, that solves really big problems, that's going to alleviate suffering. And, you know, if you do that, you're going to produce plenty of economic value too. So what are other aspects of um, of biotech that you are looking at that you think will change dramatically over the next 10 years? Are they are they subsections of CRISPR and, and gene editing or is there, you know, you've mentioned to me before 
being able to kind of print organs that you can do tests on and so on and so forth. Like, what are some other aspects of things that you see happening in the next 10 years? Well, uh, you know, sort of the, the general theme, as I described, is that you've got this toolkit that's getting much, much more expansive that allows you to fix human disease. And so the sorts of medications that people are developing at the cutting edge now are things like cell therapies, where you actually use a patient's own cells as a drug. One of the other milestones of the past decade was the first approval of a cancer cell therapy where you take a patient's own immune cells out of their body, edit them with a virus, and then put them back in their body, essentially as nanorobots that are going to go and fix the cancer. I mean, we already have that today. That already exists, you know? Not as sexy to write about it as Twitter and Instagram and all this, <laughs> but like, I mean, talk about what we've accomplished in the past decade. That's major. So we've got this ability to use cells as drugs, the ability now to increasingly edit DNA and also to impart other changes to the genome. So this is the broad category of gene therapies. Can you insert genes for patients who are missing them, repair a defective gene, Can you? silence a gene that's not working? Increasingly. And you know, you're gonna start seeing in the next few years, many of these things come out onto the market and address major unmet medical needs. And you know, this is a groundbreaking moment for a lot of these patients with rare diseases. There are now um, a number of patients around the country who are literally working with scientists to develop drugs that will work just for them, completely personalized drugs. And and those, it's almost like 3D printing furniture. It's just like this thing that you that is created just for you and your DNA and so on? Just for you. I remember one of the stories of the last year was uh, um, that made the rounds towards the end of the year was the guy who created the Labradoodle, who yeah. regretted yeah. creating the Labradoodle yeah. <clears throat> and said it was the worst thing he'd done in his yeah. life. And it was like Frankenstein. What are the, uh, how do scientists and and investors and researchers and so on Think about um, the potential negatives that could possibly come from creating these kinds of technologies and science-related tools in the next few years. I think most of the time they don't think that much about it. Should they? Well, I think you need a diversity of thought around the table. So you need policymakers, you need philosophers, you need scientists, you need engineers, you know, you, you need I love patients. How I use, don't you love how I use the Labradoodle as a, a way into well, this? Well, <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a really interesting one because I was talking to a friend the other day who was making a very provocative argument. He was basically saying, look, people are still living in the 1800s when it comes to the way they think about dogs, um, almost tantamount to racism. So, we, you know, people who are explicitly anti-racist in a human context regularly talk about dog breeds and, oh, this breed has this disposition and that breed has this disposition. Well, do we actually know that? You know, or are these just stereotypes? People who love pit bulls are always making the argument that pit bulls are stigmatized as violent, aggressive, whatever. It may be the case that they're not at all relative to other dogs. So we are thinking in this sort of very racial way about dogs still. Um, the, the do you other- wanna, Do you yeah. wanna know the, the, what's the most vicious dog? No, what is it? Guess. What? The most, the most vicious- The poodle? No, it's the chihuahua, but they're so- they're Do we know such, this? This is like a scientific yeah. Uh, yeah. 
fact, quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, the chihuahuas are the most, but they're so, they're little and they have little teeth, and so they can't really. They're, do they're much. the piranhas of dogs. Yeah, they are the piranhas of dogs. If you put a bunch of them in your house and didn't feed them, there would be no more you. Well, the other thing about dogs, right, is that they're um, they're proliferating in an evolutionary context, just like everything else. And their adaptive strategy is to endear themselves to humans. Oh, yeah, completely. Their, their success is a result of us. So the Labradoodle guy, you know, on the one hand, maybe um, it's created a, a really negative force for other dog um, taxa. Let's call it taxa because I don't want to be dog racist. But um, <laughs> dog racist. in some ways, you know, these doodles are going to be the salvation of dogs because the cuter dogs are to humans, the more they're going to flourish. When you, you know, when was the last time you saw a Labradoodle at a kill pound? It's true. You don't see them. You see pitbulls, right? Because they got the bad, bad stigma. When you think about, um, the, 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 it's 2020. Let's imagine for a second is 2030. Right. And let's put on your biotech investment hat here. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, what do you think we're talking about that just happened over the last decade that it, from a cultural standpoint is the thing that has kind of captured society? Is it science and healthcare or is there some kind of newfangled technology or like what, because it feels like I remember there was a, uh, there was a kind of, uh, I forget who it was. It was an investor that was saying, um, a couple of years ago that, you know the the amount of technology that went into creating the the, the, the smartphone took took many 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 years to, to create decades even um, and that the next level of technology is going to require artificial intelligence like real not this fake artificial intelligence that exists today but like real artificial intelligence and that there will be a lull in consumer technology between now and then until they can do that right um, and then new applications come out and so a lot of people think that. Um, that the 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 next ten years or so, or whatever the number is, is going to really be applying the technologies that we have today to healthcare and to and you know and you're seeing like Apple do it with the Apple Watch and you're seeing startups around and I'm just curious what you think what you can predict maybe just by guessing of course we don't know what it's going to be might take place over the next ten years. So I think. What we can be certain of almost is that you're going to have this flourishing of basic technologies that creates real cures for a lot of diseases. So I think the technology part, I almost take for granted. The technology is on fire. There's a revolution happening. That's going to keep yielding amazing stuff. Now, the uncertainty, and, and frankly, this is where I'm a little more pessimistic, is around how we as societies are going to share that technology. And you don't even need to talk about whether, you know, gene editing is going to lead to a, a polarization of, you know, uh, income, uh, you know, cohorts and a, the creation of a super race of rich people who can afford cures and genetic enhancements and so forth. Let's just rewind to today where there are millions of people in America who die as a result of lack of access to quality food or basic health care or transportation to get to a doctor's office, or um, children who die of malnutrition in America. You know, one third of children today in America are born on Medicaid. 
So we already have a system that is incredibly unfair in the way that it allocates access to the medical technology we have today. There are no signs right now that I can point to that suggest we're getting better on that front. So I think, you know, better technologies in some ways is going to exacerbate that problem because it becomes even less just when poor people don't have access to amazing low-cost curative medicine. So do you so you think that technology will create an even bigger inequality gap I in think healthcare? It, I think it could. And and I mean I hope that doesn't happen. You know, we're we're going to try as investors to fix that. You know, hopefully as citizens we advocate for politicians who want to move in the right direction, but our scorecard right now is pretty pretty bad. But isn't one of the promises of technology that it does kind of level the playing field and it makes it easier for, you know, I mean, it did work with social media with people with a, being given a voice, right? So why would it, is it, is it that the insurance companies don't want it to happen or that the people who make these technologies don't want it? Like, how is it that a new tech, like you see it in consumer technology. So I remember when probably at the beginning of this, uh, a decade ago, when um, I was I went to CES for the first time um, and of course got the CES bug and, but the, that was a real bug. I got sick. Everyone gets sick at CES because you're shaking everyone's hands and it's really gross, but there was flat screen TVs and they were like $30,000. If you walk into Best Buy today, you can get a 65 inch flat screen TV for like 80 bucks. It's like the, the, the cost of these things has gone down so dramatically and therefore everyone has flat screen TVs. So why is it that, Healthcare does it. That same philosophy of consumer electronics doesn't apply to consumer healthcare. You know, um, I, I shared with you. I think this article I just wrote on how drugs are priced. Uh, we would, walk us talk us through that. Well, it's fascinating. The, the 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 point of this series I'm writing is that prices don't really exist in American healthcare. You don't really have capitalism working. So if you think about the touchstone of capitalism, it is this concept of price discovery. That's the efficiency we create with markets that, you know, you have a bunch of people out here who have various demands, and then you have other people who have talents or products or services, and you send them out into the commons and they figure out the price of these products and services, and it distributes the things people are supplying to the things that people are demanding, to the people who are demanding those things. And in healthcare, you have no price discovery because we have no transparency around what the prices are for any of the products. So in my article, I talk about how drugs are priced, which is something that most people have no understanding of. When you go to the pharmacy, part of the problem is that you're not typically paying for the drug if you have insurance. Your insurance company is paying for the drug. So the price of the drug that is paid to the pharmacy is borne by your insurance company. But then what happens is your insurance company has negotiated with the pharmaceutical company a huge kickback, basically. So you go get a drug filled, it costs $100, your insurance company pays the pharmacy $100, and then Merck, who made the drug, gives your insurance company $80. So the true price of the drug, the so-called net price, was $20, but you have this price that the pharmacy was paid, which is $100. That's not really the price. Then you have the price that the pharmacy paid to a wholesale distributor that gave them the pill, which might have been you know, $90. So there are like five different prices that exist for this one product, this drug. How do they get away with it? Well, it's, it's a system where no one bad guy is to blame. Everyone is doing something that from their 
you know, rational economic interest makes sense, but collectively the system has evolved into this disordered nonsense that creates huge lacks of information efficiency. And so um, I, I think this is all a circuitous way of answering your basic question, which is why doesn't medical technology end up democratized like an iPhone or like an Android or whatever? And I think the issue is that you don't have a real market. Like at the end of the day, every patient in the world wants their medical conditions solved. There's no, there's no product or service category for which there is a comparable level of demand as medicine. Hmm. This is the most important thing to all of us in all of our lives. And yet capitalism as a system is not serving to fulfill that demand because there's not a direct line of economic interaction between the consumer and the producer, be it a pharma company or a hospital or a medical device manufacturer or a durable medical equipment company. There's no actual capitalism. Supply and demand doesn't work. No. And you add to that in the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical business and the diagnostics business, government sanctioned monopolies through the patent system. On the one hand, they're great because they incentivize innovation. You know, you have companies like the ones I look at spending a billion dollars to develop a a cutting edge product because if they do, they're going to have a 10 year monopoly on selling it. But at the same time, it invites these dirty tricks now where the pharma companies want to preserve their monopolies by sharing their monopoly rents with all these intermediaries like PBMs and insurance companies to try and preserve the power of their franchises. And this really works against the interests of regular patients. So how is it fixable? Well, I mean, you need a combination of public policy, visionary leadership that recognizes, look, guys, capitalism is not working in this domain. We need to re-regulate or reduce regulation. You know, one of the things people don't think about a lot is big regulation is often to the benefit of big companies. They're the ones who can afford to navigate a system that's really complicated. So this is one area where the sort of traditionally liberal and conservative political ideologies should actually diverge because... You know, the good thing for innovation in some ways and the good thing for consumers may be less regulation such that incumbents have a lower advantage. That's bad. So if you but but if you do take away the regulation so that the incumbents do have an advantage, then the supply and demand could actually kick in. Well, you want you want active capitalism. You want competition. You want a lot of innovation and you want a lot of competition around price and you want consumers to have real choice between different products out there that are trying to serve their demand. You know, if you have a disease, you should look at the three pills that are available and say, I want the cheap one if it does the exact same thing. And and if it's cheaper and everyone chooses it, it should take the market share. Right now, you know, the, these monopoly powers essentially determine their own market share. So should we should we as consumers be excited by the fact that companies like Apple are getting on into the edges of healthcare with, you know, diagnostics and so on and so forth. And they've talked a little bit about how, because it means that it, it's a new entrance to that market that could help deregulate it. I think so. I mean, look, I think what we, what we really want are we want new companies that are going to replace the big companies, the big old companies, right? So, um, you know, why are Apple and Amazon and Google 
looking at healthcare because they're so big yeah. that it's hard to find another market where they could actually generate meaningful growth relative to their current size. Healthcare is the biggest one. It's the biggest industry. Trillions. Um, trillions. You're spending three and a half trillion a year in the U.S. Um, I think the target should be on the backs of hospitals. The hospitals in our systems are really the ones that are sucking up all the costs. They're monopolies. They control local geographies. Their prices keep going up. They can't figure out how to generate efficiencies. But no one wants to be mad at doctors and hospitals. Everyone wants to point the finger at insurance companies, at pharma companies. The, the bad guys from a cost standpoint are really these hospitals. And it's a political gridlock because you figure healthcare is employing 10% of the U.S. population. You got a big hospital in every, con every congressional district. So the political costs of going up against big healthcare are really, really high. You don't even see Elizabeth Warren or Bernie doing this, you know, slightly with the idea of, you know, sort of Medicare for all. But, but really, the rhetoric is all about big pharma, big insurance. No one's talking about the hospitals or the doctors who are charging an arm and a leg for services that you can get elsewhere in the world much cheaper. So if we were to solve these problems in the next few years or so, or, or start to solve them, is the, is the outcome that less people die at younger ages, we live longer, we solve diseases quicker? Like, what, what are the outcomes that come about from this? Is there less inequality when it comes to healthcare? Is it all of the above? Yeah, I mean, I think you want, at a basic level of, of social and distributional justice, you want every person in the world receiving the best health care that exists for anyone in the world, right? So that should be our goal. And then the other thing we should all wish for is that that best care keeps getting better and gets better faster and faster. So to me, you've got these two pieces. You've got the innovation piece. We want that to move really quickly because this benefits all of us. And then you've got the distributional questions. And, you know, hopefully we can make a lot of progress on both of these fronts. When you look at science fiction movies, um, you know, uh, they, years and years ago, most sci-fi has created the technology that exists today. You know, sci-fi predicted nuclear weapons. They predicted smartphones, the internet. I mean, the things that they predicted that haven't happened yet, but flying cars, for example, but they will. Um, and um, and I actually think, you know, when you listen to Elon Musk talk about his, his dream of of being the first person to die on Mars, which is what he said recently, um, not live there, but to die there. But um, it's all based on sci-fi. And when you look at a lot of the sci-fi in, 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 in our culture, it is, it is not that that you just said. It is a even more extreme version of um, the rich get access to the technologies that make them live to a thousand years old and the poor die poor. Do you think that that's the future or do you actually believe that we can stop that from happening? Well, I mean, I think earlier today we were emailing around that, that Matt Ridley article, um, basically arguing the past decade was awesome. The world got a lot better by all sorts of objective metrics. This is the Steven Pinker argument. There are a handful of these guys who are sort of the the opposite of you, right? You know, like they look they look at the world and they go, "I'm not, I'm not I, I, there is some optimism in me." Sure, sure. I believe that there's lots of. I will get to what I'm. But I don't see about. you writing an article about how much better the world is today than it was ten years ago. 
I think that's that, just not you. Uh, I could I could write certain things I I that I could get into, but we'll let's get but to that afterwards. You know what? There, I think part of the reason you don't write that article is because you're an entertaining writer. No, this, it's not that. It's I. It's it's for me. Here's here's there's what no it is. drama in no, the it's in not the, the argument drama. that the world's no, here's, great. Here's it's all what going it is well. For me. for me, I remember Dick Costolo when he was CEO of Twitter. And I interviewed him for this feature that I wrote about him, and he he was a former comedian. He was a um, uh, stand-up comic he did um, improv and he told me that like he did he did Second City which was in, in Chicago, Chicago yeah. yeah and he did it with like Tina Fey and wow. Steve Carell and all those guys like he was a really big wow. uh, amazing comedian uh, and um, he actually a funny little aside he said that there was one day I think it was Steve Carell came up to him they were both being like they were both at some dinner and he came up to him and he shook his hand he's like hey sorry it didn't work out brother, brother. Uh, even though you know he was the CEO of Twitter yeah. uh, um, but that aside so I remember Dick telling me that sometimes when you're up there as a comedian and you're like you're doing your bit and like there could be a thousand people in the audience and 999 of them are laughing and one of them's not. And all you're thinking is, why is that guy not laughing or that woman not laughing? Like, what is it? And, and for me as a journalist, I think like I look at, I look at like, sure, there's been a lot of great stuff that's happened. There's Me Too and Black Lives Matter and we could go on and on and on and on. And, and, and the world is a better place as a result of the internet and technology and so on. However... You can point to Russia and Syria and even China and, uh, on, and and America and Donald Trump and Mark Zuckerberg and Amazon and Jeff Bezos being worth $176 billion and, and massive inequality in the things that you were talking about, kids dying from malnutrition in the United States. And you can look at all those things and you can say, well, maybe it didn't work. And so for me, it's not that I am a... I couldn't write that article, but I don't think that we should write that article. Yeah, but, I mean, I think what you're getting at, right, is you, you need prophetic voices at all times who are calling attention to people who are not getting a good deal in society, who are not getting a good deal as a result of technological innovation, you know, who are, who are getting the, the shit end of the stick. And I think that technological innovation and media, which is two industries that I've covered and work in, are, have, have... That are now the same. That are now the same. Yeah. Um, uh, and entertainment and politics and all these things that are all the same now. I think that they have, they have, in the same way that the speed of technolo technological change has happened so rapidly, it's also, I think, created massive inequality at a rapid pace. And, and there's only 600 and something billionaires in the United States. Why the fuck do they get to say what happens to this society? Sure. They shouldn't. Yep. There's 2,000 in the world. Like, they shouldn't be the ones that say what happens. And I right. think that, like, that's the thing that pisses me off. Oh, I mean, I think that's fair. There's no question it's fair. And I think the, you know, the opportunity for any of us is to offer a vision of what the future should look like that we would all be excited about. You know, right now, what I see is China proposing this idea of the future where you have essentially a totalitarian dictatorship surveillance state that does what's in the best interests defined somehow of everyone uh, through a level of draconian enforcement, uh, you know, everywhere all the time. And then in the United States, we are still holding on to our sort of traditional cowboy um, liberal ideology that the way of the future is for every person to be uh, sovereign, you know, in his or her own right. And that this kind of disorganized personal freedom, rapid competition, rapid innovation, 
um, is a competitive alternative to that Chinese vision. To me, neither of these deserves to win. Neither of them is coherent. And, and what I'm waiting to hear from any politician, from any pundit is, come on, what, what should we be building? Like, what does a society for the next hundred years look like, you know, that, that preserves the things that the American democratic experiment have revealed to be productive and virtuous, but that also doesn't sacrifice efficiency, the collective good, the environment. And, and I'm not hearing that from anyone. And, no, and none of these agree. tech leaders are articulating it either. I mean, they're basically arguing for a corporate version of the Chinese state. Yeah, no, that Mark Zuckerberg believes that, and so does Jeff Bezos, they believe that their version of, of what the future society looks like capitalistically and just in every way imaginable that their idea is the best idea. So let me ask you about one last area. You wrote the book on Dread Pirate Roberts. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, crypto is this other nascent but, you know, hotly discussed um, frontier that happened this decade. Yep. I was a beneficiary. I was a seed investor in Ripple. So seven years ago, I went up to San Francisco. All these guys were talking about, we're going to re-architect the internet. It's going to be decentralized. There won't be these big central companies running all these online services. This sort of hasn't happened. I mean, objectively, that has not happened. Correct. But crypto continues to get funding, continues to attract young talent. Is You, you saw Jack Dorsey write on Twitter you know, a few weeks ago this kind of proposal for a vision of Twitter in the future based on Stephen Wolfram's proposal to Congress that Twitter essentially or Facebook reinvent themselves as almost agnostic platforms for content curation with a, a sort of menu of different algorithms. Yep. And Jack Dorsey said, we're going, that's the right vision. Twitter's going to try and do it. We're going to try and decentralize Twitter and build this new version of internet media. Is that exciting to you? Do, you? do you think he means it? Do you think that's a vision we should pursue? I don't think I, do I think he means it? I think he is, I think Dorsey is fascinated by crypto. Um, he's always been fast. He, I, he once told me that, you know, in his mind, there are two things that that make society run, and one of them is communication, and the other is currency. Uh, and he runs two companies that do both. And he he believed he believes uh, that eventually they will merge together. Uh, and his vision was that you would one day walk into um, a restaurant and pay by saying, "I'm at Nick Bilton," rather than, you know. Or I'm at DA Wall, like, or, or you don't even say it, but that's how you pay. You pay through, and it's the same thing, like your Twitter. And I think that you're starting to kind of see that happen. I mean, it's still like, still so hard to split the bill, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's frustrating. Um, but you're starting to see that happen. I mean, look, uh, you know, I think Apple Pay via text message is fascinating. You know, um, it is such a simple Ven Venmo. I remember when I first wrote about Venmo. Uh, and I forget the guy's name who started it, but he was telling me that his vision was that you would walk into a restaurant, you would walk out, and that it would they would know who you were, and they would just you would just give them permission to charge you and a twenty percent tip or whatever it is. And I think, you know, and that's the way it works with Uber essentially. Like those things are happening from on a consumer level. I think that the reason my theory is that the reason that Bitcoin and crypto has not worked is because it's in America. 
it is trying to disrupt the dollar and 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 the dollar is the is the is currently the currency for now i mean we don't know how much longer that's going to last but it is currently the currency with which the world operates and and you've got this other thing that's trying to disrupt that and i think that where jack dorsey is correct is that when you look at a, a market like africa where you have all these different currencies that are all trying to work across borders and this that and the other and you have Bill, a billion plus people that are that are going to get there's only in Africa right now there are only um, 300 million people with smartphones and it is that the the UN believes that by I think 2025 or something like that it'll be up to 800 million I mean this is a lot of people that are going to come online within the next five years or so and when they do um, I think the cryptocurrency in Africa could could change the way. Well, this is what Fred, you know, Fred Wilson from Union Square Ventures, who has a lot of bets in crypto, but very smart venture capitalist, sent out an email a couple of days ago with his predictions for the decade. He said he thinks China is going to be the first country to really embrace digitizing the currency, that they'll move into a sort of state-controlled, decentralized version of the Chinese currency, and that this will lead to a digitization of the financial markets that will be a competitive advantage vis-a-vis the United States, Europe, elsewhere, and, and probably lay the foundation for a sort of geopolitical dominance in places like China or Southeast Asia. And I, I think there, there's a real possibility of that. You know, what you're talking about in some ways seems like almost a foregone conclusion. Yeah. You know, and so maybe one optimistic view is that, you know, the sort of crypto community um, with its unbridled enthusiasm for the possibilities of the future, is the most exciting community right now. What? Like these folks are really trying to figure out what should succeed capitalist centralized states. And that's incredibly ambitious. You know, on the one hand, maybe they were too early. Well, it's I was going to say, I think, it's, I think on, on the one hand, to bring it back to the beginning, like maybe they're, maybe it's AR and they just got the date wrong. Well, it could be both, right? I mean, maybe, and, and, you know, let's go to the smartest guy, Zuckerberg. Of course, he's got Libra and Oculus and is thinking about all this. And he's got a very long view of history, right? And he wants to be world emperor in some way. <laughs> so, you know, um, you know, you got, you got to take seriously the bets that people like that are making who have effectively no financial restrictions, um, enormous global reach. I think we could easily be moving into this era of crypto and AR and virtual reality. Um, one of the hazards as an investor or a pundit is to call the loss prematurely, right? And you or I could easily look back at the past years and say, oh, these techno-utopian idiots, you know, um, they were so wrong about crypto, AR, VR, whatever. Um, maybe those things are just 30-year transformations. And, you know, They've only just gotten started. All right, so let's just bring this to a conclusion with a little, a little, a little fun, a little okay. fun here. Um, it's twenty thirty. You just came over for an automatic cappuccino from my automatic cappuccino machine in twenty thirty that exists, and or maybe I'm still making them by hand. Who knows? What is what does the world look like? What did, did you take a driverless car here? Did you f- take a flying car here? Did you? You know, as someone is Elon Musk up on Mars, and we're like, you know, he's he's live streaming his morning Mars run. Like, is 
are we gene editing our children? Like, what what do we what does the world look like? Well, I mean, if this VR thing happens, I didn't even come over here, right? We're we're both in our pods, right? In our in our like you know adult amniotic sacks, like you know hooked up to IVs, taking you know longevity supplements, and we're you know it's kind of the matrix. Um, you know, I, I think the more catalyzing vision of 2030 might be one in which not a lot has changed you know in some ways that would be a tragedy um we're we're, we're just spending more time in our smartphones oh my, i don't <laughs> think smartphones to, are going to exist hopefully away. this no. press i mean hopefully this is going away like i saw you have those airpod pros yeah man i tried those the other day they're pretty sick no the airpod pros are pretty amazing you can have a conference call like literally standing on a freeway and it blocks out the, it's amazing i mean blocks let, out the noise you know let's say we are just that and the apple glasses and the watch <laughs> no smartphone and um you know we're living longer if you get cancer you don't die um, you know, it's harder not to get fat and get heart disease because there's just like more cheap, delicious shit everywhere. It's genetically modified, cheap, delicious shit. I mean, what I want is I want GMO food that tastes like candy bars, but is really, really healthy. You know, that sounds pretty epic. And I want a pill that lets you eat garbage and remain healthy. I mean, I'm all for convenience. Do you mean and they could make gluttony. genetically modified broccoli that tastes like dark chocolate? I mean, that'd be pretty cool. I wish they used the modifications to do that and not just like improve agronomic traits that I don't care about. <laughs> like, you know, I don't care if this is like slightly more pest resistant so some farmer can eke out a couple more cents on it. I think we just came it. up with a, a new business idea. I, will you fund, if I figure out how to make broccoli that tastes like dark chocolate, would you, would you fund that? A hundred percent. And I, as I always remind Liz, and I'm going to remind her about our future baby, depending on her uh, genetic variants, I have the, the mutation that lets me taste this disgusting chemical that's in broccoli and cabbage and a few other greens. So like, if you have this, you have that, I have it. So you and, can't eat broccoli. Oh, I mean, they're just, it's disgusting. What does me. it do? It, like it just, sour milk it just or? tastes disgusting. It's, it's, I can't even, there's no other disgusting that it's like. Wow. And if you don't have this, you don't taste the disgusting thing. So, I mean, I, I'd, I'd love to eat tomatoes and broccoli and eggplant and all the stuff I don't eat. So, you know, so I, you could create the genetic mutation to make it taste like chocolate. That'd be amazing. I mean, if we could get that, I'd be eating a lot of broccoli. <laughs> I want that. I mean, I th so I think the future in short is like AR broccoli and, um, you know, AR and no broccoli. no smartphones. No smartphones. And like... Living, living to what age? You know... By the norm. People in the longevity world who are not the crazy ones talk about health span versus lifespan. The idea mm. being health span would be like you you live to 85, 89, and then you just drop dead, you know, a day later with no long, steep, terrible decline. Yeah. Th that's what we should be trying to get to. I mean, I don't know that we're going to push out the maximum human lifespan all that much. We might. But if all of us just lived as long as these centenarians who are going to 105, 110, 
you know, smoking cigarettes at 106, <laughs> drinking whiskey. The you thing know, that I love about olives. the thing I love about these centarians <laughs> is that they is that you every single article it's like the secret to how I lived to 106 and every single one is different. Like I ate a lot of broccoli, I smoked cigarettes, I never ran in my entire life, I watched TV, I had sex 17 times a day. Like it's just it's good just, genes. It's, it's just, just good, good genes. genes. Yeah, completely. it's good genes, and and you know we're all we're all going to figure out how to how to squeeze as much life out of our potential as possible. So that'd be a good thing. All right, I'm going to give you mine. All right, it's 10 years from now. We're sitting here, and I think that most cars have Wait, well, we're still alive in your vision of the future? <laughs> there hasn't been a nuclear blast. All right, so there hasn't been a nuclear okay. blast, although it could happen. Yeah. Um, uh, they, we, most cars are driverless, and that you, and I think that there will be certain downtown areas and certain cities where you are not allowed to operate cars, vehicles that are not driverless. I think that ownership of things has just has been kind of taken over in the same way that music and film have and books over the last decade. I think that you don't own your car, you don't own your clothes, you don't own um, kids' toys or or vehicles or even maybe your house. Um, I think that 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 we in the same way that we used to buy books and put them on our shelf, we now essentially buy them or rent them and put them on our Kindle and, and the same with films and music and so on. And I think that will happen to so many different things. Um, and you just kind of trade them out when you want a new one. Uh, I think that one of the things I think is going to be super fascinating over the next 10 years is, is entertainment. So eventually, and you're seeing it now, like Samsung and Sharp and places like that, they're working, they've been working on it for years, but um, fold up screens, roll up screens. And the, you know, the concept is essentially that your living room will just be screens and you won't necessarily have art on the wall, but it will be, you can select an area that looks like art and it looks like it's framed and so on. And that, that a, a film experience will be an entire encapsulating experience. And I saw this at Microsoft a few years back at the home of the future. And you're watching this like crazy scene on this giant wall that is essentially a whole screen and the, everything around you is like a, so it was a jungle scene and the sides of the room where you were in the jungle and it's the sounds, you know, of the rain and the, this and that and the other. And I think that what, ha what the next generation of that is, is going to be is that, we don't just consume content, we are part of the content. In the same way that video games, you are in the video game and you are controlling it. I think that the next generation of film and whatever it is, is going to be that you are a character within that thing, individualized, and everything becomes individualized. Um, and I think that uh, we will, last but not least, we will have broccoli that tastes like chocolate. Amen. All right. DA, this has been fantastic. You're I, you're you're on social media so and you're social mediaing a, a lot now. Man, I'm, I'm going tell people where they can find you. Okay, go to Instagram. Follow D A Wallach on Instagram. That's D A W A L L A C H. Same name on Twitter, and that's kind of all that matters right now, isn't that's it? it? That's yeah, it. There's that's nothing it. else until the that's next it. decade. Yep. Thank you so Thanks, much, Nick. Of course, my pleasure. Thanks to my guest today, D.A. Wallach. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. 
They go back all the way to a couple of years ago, and there's lots and lots of great ones. You can find them, of course, on applepodcastradio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. This should be your New Year's resolution that you're only going to write nice things about other people's content, especially this content. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and I appreciate you all for listening. Happy New Year, and I will see you next week. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear.